This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Moore. We're introducing you to the candidates for governor ahead of primaries that are open to any voter. You don't have to be a member of a party. Today, Republican Greg Lopez. He invited us to join him over the weekend at a Cinco de Mayo celebration in Denver's Civic Center Park. Lopez, the only Hispanic candidate in the race, used to be mayor of Parker, but it was his time in the Air Force that sparked a conversation with a voter who passed by his booth. Rebecca Monopolis of Littleton told him her father is also an Air Force veteran. What did your dad do? He was a fighter pilot, and he was stationed in Elmendorf, Alaska. Oh, well, you know what? I was a weapons specialist. So okay, I would have loaded. So his, I would have loaded his entire. You made him good. Yeah, wow. I would have loaded all his ammunition, making sure that if he wanted to hit something, it was going to work. Veterans were also on Tracy Shaw's mind. She lives in Denver now, but I lived in the Springs. I worked for counselors who tried to help them. The guys that were in the military were scared to talk to counselors because it would get to their superiors, right. so they wouldn't come in. Yeah. How are we supposed to help them? Yeah. If they can't help themselves because of fear. Right. You know, we got to change that whole narrative. One of the things that I heard from the uh, chaplains and the people inside the military, because I asked them, I said, what's changed? And they said, Greg, there was a day where it would take six months or five months to get them from the front lines to get them home. And they would be able to self kind of deprogram themselves, right? They would talk about my story. You would share your story. Now they're home within 48 hours. Their conversation turned to guns. Lopez thinks the Second Amendment keeps people safe. He says, like driver's licenses, one state should respect another's concealed carry permit. And back to the military, he thinks there should be open carry on bases and at recruiting centers. Tracy Shaw liked what she heard, that Lopez would protect her rights and freedoms, she says. Like guns, you know, the right to have and own, own and have one. Um, talking about security, um, the right to have your privacy not taken away because they're afraid of what may happen. You know, those are just a couple of things. Lopez is also a former director for the U.S. Small Business Administration in Colorado, and he currently owns a restaurant in Aurora. And Greg Lopez is in our studio. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. What is the greatest problem facing Colorado, and how would you solve it? You know, I think the greatest problem that's facing Colorado is just like the greatest problem that's facing our country. You know, we struggle in being able to have good dialogue and conversation when we're looking to solve problems for the state. You know, when you look at the actual issues that are being discussed, whether it's transportation, education, water, as you go across the entire state, you know, I think we all share the same common uh, objective. And that is we all want to make Colorado a better state. We want to make sure that everybody's future is uh, the future that everybody's looking for. But I think right now is being able to have good conversation, making sure that we're looking to solve problems together. How does the governor fix that? Well, I think the governor can definitely set an example. You know, people have asked me, Greg, what would you do the first 100 days if you were governor? And I tell them, you know what? I don't know because I really haven't thought about the first 100 days. But I'd tell you what i do the first 10 days. And that is I would invite the leadership of the General Assembly to meet with me. But we wouldn't meet in the Capitol and we wouldn't meet in the governor's office. We'd meet on the seventh floor of the Denver Public Library. Now, what's on the seventh floor is a table that was used at the Summit of Eight 
where the the eight heads of state sat down to talk about the challenges. And what's unique about that table, it is a handcrafted table by a Coloradan, and the table is round. There is no right side. There is no left side. So when we sit at this table, we're going to work on solving problems for Colorado. Okay. You mentioned a few of the issues there, education and transportation. We'll get to those in in just a moment. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your background. Your parents were migrant workers, harvesting crops, traveling from the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, all the way sometimes up to Michigan. That's correct. What was that like as a kid? You know, I don't remember much of it. You know, I see pictures of me and my brothers out in the fields, but my mom and my dad tell us about the hard life that they had to do, you know, and how they used to make burritos underneath the trucks and how, you know, we would try to find shade and those types of things, you know. But from what I remember of what they tell me, I mean, it was a hard life, but it was a, it was a family life, you know. It brought family together. On the campaign trail and right at the top of your website, Craig Lopez, you say that you're the only candidate with true government executive experience. Uh, that is a bold claim in a race with a state treasurer, uh, a former state treasurer, and the current lieutenant governor. Can you tell me what you mean when you say that? Yeah. You know, when I was mayor, I was elected at the age of 27. In Parker? In Parker. I was very fortunate because not only was I the mayor, but I was a city manager at the same time. It was a strong mayor form of government. So all the department heads reported directly to me. And so I was responsible for putting the budget together. I was responsible for seeing the day-to-day operations of the community. And I only voted if there was a split vote on council. So every issue that the town had to face, whether it's land use, zoning, residential development, transportation corridors, public service, or public safety, all those issues had to cross my desk as we move forward in making Colorado the community that it is today. You were a Democrat when you were elected mayor, weren't you? I was. What, briefly, would you say, turned you into a Republican? You know, I think I'm like most uh, minorities. You know, we all are Democrats because our mom and dads told us that we are Democrats because the Democrats look after the poor. But when I got elected, I was going to the schools. And the question I always get from the schools was, the students was, what party are you and why? And my answer was, I'm a Democrat because my mom and dad are. After a while, that answer didn't sit well with me. I decided that, you know, the students needed a better answer. So I studied the national platforms for both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And after six months of reviewing the platforms, I determined that I was truly a Republican. Was there an issue, a part of your life that you think uh, sealed the deal? I think it's my upbringing. You know, being strong in family and faith and being conservative – Watching our dollars, you know, I come from humble beginnings, so I'm not a very extravagant spender. You know, I make sure that whatever I buy, I hold on to, that I don't wait. I'm not wasteful with any things that I acquire. And I think those were the values that I really held down as a Republican. You talked about not necessarily having a specific vision for your first 100 days. Some might hear that and think, well, this this is a man who lacks a plan, who lacks a vision. So let's get into some of Uh, the issues that you mentioned, education, for instance. You're campaigning as the candidate who will represent all of Colorado's 64 counties. And when it comes to education, rural areas face teacher shortages. According to the National Education Association, while the average teacher salary in the state in 2016 was more than $51,000, 
the average pay is almost $30,000 less in rural areas. How would you address that? You know, and this is a question that everybody asks as it pertains to, you know, the, the environment and the economy in rural Colorado is totally different from urban Colorado. And unless you've traveled to 64 counties and actually been in those communities, it's really hard to truly understand the challenges that they're facing. You know, I think the one of the things that we need to remember is that the state gives money to the school districts. It's the school districts that look at their salaries, their benefits, and all those types of things. I think there is a an imbalance on how we fund rural Colorado when it comes to education. The real question that we should be asking is why is there a negative factor of $828 million? This is something of an IOU that the state issued to schools after the recession. It's being paid down, but it's still in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, I don't know that it's being paid down. You know, when I look at the budget, I don't, I'm not seeing a whole lot of funds being funneled over there. But here's the thing. Why is it that when you have a constitutional amendment that the government believes that they should have an IOU to educate our children? There's a state constitutional amendment, Amendment 23, that guaranteed a certain level of funding for education. So would you uh, back a tax increase on the ballot for schools? No. I think what we need to do is look at making sure that we're paying back the educational funds that we've borrowed. Where does that money come from in the state budget, Greg Lopez? The money is in the budget. What you have to do is you have to prioritize. See, I truly believe... So what gets cut, what gets scaled back to make sure that you pay down that IOU? I think what you have to do is first look at the totality of the budget. I'm going to tell you that in any any government budget, there's a, a percentage that is fraud, waste, and abuse. And the reason I say that is because, you know, people don't spend other people's money as carefully as they spend their own. Until I, t- until I see the entire operation of the government, you can look at a budget and you can look at the numbers and you can ask, how is this being spent? But one of the fallacies that a lot of people don't understand is you really have to have a conversation with people to understand how those programs are working. Are you saying there are hundreds of millions of dollars of fraud, waste and abuse in Colorado's budget? I'm saying that there is a level of fraud, waste, and abuse, and I, I wouldn't surprise me to find out that there's ways that we can save more money to go into education. Let me give you a perfect example. Let me ask right? you this. But let me give you a perfect example. When I was mayor, okay, I found out that at the end of the year, my department heads were spending money uh, on paper and spending money on, on pallets of things that really weren't mission-driven. When I asked them why they were spending that money, their response was, well, we have to spend all our money because if we don't spend all our money, then you will not not only not give us what we spent last year, but you won't give us an increase. And that is the mindset of government is that you have to spend every single dollar that you ask for. But do, when do you, you really think that, that Republicans in the legislature, for instance, who presumably feel similarly to you about the budget or, frankly, a governor who – Uh, campaigned on cutting red tape. Don't you think they would have found hundreds of millions of dollars in fraud, waste, and abuse? I think if they look for it, truly look for it, okay, they would, okay? But I think one of the things that happens, and I've been in government before, so I can tell you this, you know, if you don't find it right away, people will stop looking. But you have to ask questions because if you talk to the employees and you ask them here in this radio station, if you were to ask some of the employees, 
Where could we save money if we needed to? I bet you would find five or ten ideas that you might be able to pursue to help save money. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are continuing our conversations with the gubernatorial candidates today. It's Republican Greg Lopez. Uh, Do you think that there needs to be any new revenue, perhaps in transportation, for instance? So the legislature seems to have struck a deal that will send some more money to transportation that may result in bonding. But there are measures headed to the ballot, one of which might raise taxes for roads and bridges. Would you support that? You know, it's interesting that every time we have a challenge, people feel that what we need to do is raise taxes and raise money. I really don't believe that we've really analyzed all the different options that are available to us. Now, there's going to be a point in time where we might have to look and say, hey, we need to either bond or we need to look at taxes and those types of things. You know, so I'm not saying that that's off the table. What I'm saying is that we really need to evaluate where is this money going and how is it being used before we have that conversation? Because here's some of the concerns that I have. A lot of people just want to raise the sales tax to help raise uh, to build roads and to get more money for transportation. A lot of communities like Sterling and La Junta and some of the rural areas cannot absorb an increase in the sales tax. So we need to make sure that when we make decisions, we're looking at the entire 64 counties. What do you think would be a better way to raise money for roads and bridges? Well, before I say there's a better way to raise money for roads and bridges, you know, I used to sit on the board of E-470. I understand transportation corridors. This is a toll road in the Denver area. Yeah, but what you have to look at, it's not about toll roads. It's about the cost of the road. How much does it cost to make sure that you have the environmental assessments done, the construction costs, the alignments, and all those types of things? And so it's not just about the cost. But is looking at how are we going to build these roads? I hear a lot of we have to look at this. We have to study this. We have to evaluate this from you and not necessarily here are the actions I would take. Because here's the deal, right? Most politicians would like to tell you this is how we're going to fix it. And then when they get in office, they realize that perhaps they didn't have all the information and all the and all the ins and outs of what's going on. I've learned from being the mayor and being in government that if you really want to be honest and if you really want to make sure that you represent the people, that you tell them that before you make a decision, before you look at the the solution, you're going to look at all the options because it's easy to come up with, well, let's raise taxes. It's easy to say, well, let's do this. But until you truly understand the totality of the complexity of the problem, you really are just shooting from the hip. Your website says that when it comes to health care, The U.S. is in the midst of a national debate and that as governor, you'll advocate for, quote, wherever this debate leads. Uh, But you don't offer any specific policies. Give me an idea you bring to the table on health care. We know health care is something that we should all be able to afford. So the first question that you need to ask yourself, Ryan, is why is health care so expensive? No one's asking that question. Well, I think lots of people are asking that question. Well, obviously, no one's answering the question. How do you answer it? Well, I think the way I answer it is you want we need to find out, really, truly find out, why does it cost so much to get an aspirin? Why does it cost so much to get an x-ray? So do you have a policy to address that? Policies don't address those issues. It's conversations. See, Ryan, what you need to understand is that I'm a person that likes to gather information. Now, let me tell you, from some of the situations I've seen in Pueblo, Colorado, there's clinics. There's clinics that are using to provide health care true health care to individuals. And Medicaid and all those programs that we have, that's not health care. That's a means by which we pay for health care. So we need to truly understand 
How do we provide quality health care? And what we're talking about is making sure that we're providing the needs of the patient, not how are we paying for the services. Would you roll back the Medicaid expansion in Colorado? You know, one of the one of the first things that you have to remember about the Medicaid expansion is that in order for you to qualify, you have to live in poverty. So I'm going to tell you there are way too many people living in poverty here in Colorado. You know, and I want to look at why are we expanding that? Because I'm told, and I don't know, I, not until I get there, but I'm told that there's a lot of people that are qualified, working, and hard workers that can afford health care, but aren't doing that. So you're, you're saying that you know there to be a no, lot no, no, of that's able not what I said. Okay, no, no, that's not what I said. And you've heard. Yes. So okay. let's not twist my words. That's what I'm hearing. And until I get there, I won't find out. Last year, you released a nine-minute video in which you and your wife, Lisa, discussed a domestic violence incident from 1993 when you were the mayor of Parker. You've said for your part that alcohol was at least partly to blame. You were charged with physical assault. Your wife was cited for harassment. Uh, what would you tell voters who hear that and worry about the temperament you'd bring to the job? Here's what I would tell them. You know, I was a sitting mayor at the time. You know, for eight weeks, I was in the newspapers and I was on TV. You know, I made a mistake and I've learned from that. I think the true test of character of a person is if you make a mistake and you're able to stand tall and say, you know what, I learned from it. We've been married 30 years, you know, and I was very young at the time, you know, and like anybody else, you make errors. But I've learned from that, you know, in the last. What 30, have you learned from that? I've learned that, you know what, you need to first remember that two individuals coming from different perspectives of life have a different way of looking at things. And so you need to slow down and ask a lot of questions, because if you really care about someone, if you care about your marriage, you're going to work hard to build that relationship. We've been to marriage counseling three times in our 30 years. And I would tell anybody that if you're struggling in your marriage, you need to go to counseling because there's nothing to be ashamed about when you're trying to preserve something that you truly care for. Was that incident about temper? No. You know what? It wasn't about temper. It was about more of a, a, a disagreement on what our son was sick. Okay? So we were trying to comfort them, both of them. Now, this incident was not a long incident. It lasted for hours. Okay? But here's the thing. It doesn't matter because domestic violence does, does discriminate. It goes in every household. It can happen in every economic income level. And so what we want to do is we don't want to hide from it. You know, a lot of people have said, you know, Greg, why don't you seal the file? And I said, no, we're not going to seal the file because this is what, who I am. It's made me a better Christian man. It made, it's made me a better father. It's made me a better husband. And I've learned from those mistakes. And while I wish it hadn't happened, but I'm a better man for it today because of how I addressed it. You often make references to God, your faith, the Bible on the campaign trail. I'm curious about how you reconcile that with your vocal support of President Trump. So it was revealed that $130,000 was paid on his behalf to an adult film star during the campaign. Trump, of course, was captured on tape making lewd remarks about women. Are those things you choose to overlook in support of his politics? I'm not sure how the connection about my spiritual belief and how President Trump is living his life kind of inter intersects. Well, I'm wondering if faith, uh, which you've said often on the campaign trail, is important to you, drives some of your political decisions, and, and even as a voter, for instance. 
Well, you know, I truly believe in my Lord and Savior. I believe that the Bible is something that uh, really guides my life as it pertains to how I treat others and how I look at situations. You know, I'm not here to pass judgment on anyone. That's not my responsibility. You know, we are all brothers and sisters in the eyes of our Creator. At least that's the way I look at it. You know, and just like any brother or sister in any family, you know, sometimes people make mistakes and sometimes they make choices that we can't control. That doesn't mean that we don't respect them as individuals. You know, there's a lot of people that we would like to see them do different situations or do make different decisions. But we don't lose hope in humanity. And that's really what I stand for. In the latest round of campaign finance reports, which came out Monday, your monetary contributions totaled just over $16,000. Uh, you trail one of your opponents, Walker Stapleton, by more than $1.3 million. How can you realistically overcome that? You know, it's interesting, right? Everybody looks at the money. Yet, when we came out of the assembly, he got 44% of the vote, and I got 33% of the vote. So it wasn't that big of a gap. You know, I think what I'm focusing in on, right, is not the, the money and uh, my raising all the millions of dollars that everybody else has. I'm focused on my message, connecting with the voters of Colorado, making sure that they understand that I care about what their struggles are, that I care about their future. You know what? And I'm going to go as far as the Lord wants to take. me. You know, and for me, it's not all about the money. It's about making sure that we're representing the right message for everyone, because it is about all of us, not just some of us. And I am the only candidate that talks about the 64 counties and making sure that people understand that there are families scattered across the state of Colorado. I'm not sure that's true, actually. I think Donna Lynn has talked about. Well, I can tell you I was the first to start talking about it. You know, Uh, Chris, money buys commercials. Do you need those? Money doesn't buy votes. You know, the best the best marketing that you can have is word of mouth. Because that word of mouth makes sure that when people are talking in their living rooms or talking in their backyards, people are respecting the opinion of others. And so money we need. There's no question about that. Okay, but for those that say money buys votes, I would say that they don't understand how the voter truly looks at the election cycle. Thank you for being with us. You betcha. Thank you for having me. Republican Greg Lopez is running for governor, and we're interviewing all the major party candidates before the primaries, which are open to all voters in Colorado. You can hear the conversations we've already aired and read transcripts at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Nature puts on a special show in Colorado each year, and the curtain's about to lift. I'm talking about wildflowers. A cast of about 3,000 species will start appearing soon in mountain valleys, on urban hillsides, and even across the plains. Chris Kassar is an outdoor writer, backcountry adventurer, and biologist, and she has written The Falcon Guidebook on the best wildflower hikes in the state. She is on the phone from Salida. Hi, Chris. Hi, Ryan. Nice to have you on the program. Your love of wildflowers is clear from the first lines of this book. You write about the anticipation you feel every year around this time, quoting you, Days lengthen, mercury rises, rivers swell, winter concedes defeat, and snow pours off hillsides with wild abandon. With each passing day, the sun hangs in the sky for a few minutes longer. Tiny bursts of color surge through the soil heralding spring's return. 
What is it about wildflowers that uh, inspires such poetic fervor in you? <laughs> um, well, it's just that um, they're reliable and um, you can count on them each year. They return and very often you find similar flowers in similar places. Um, so there's kind of just a familiarity that I have with them. Um, and I rely on them, you know, each year and they make just summer even more incredible. I love this idea that you might return to a spot and see similar flowers year after year. Uh, you have scaled dangerous peaks, run raging rapids as an outdoor guide. Uh, aren't wildflower hikes a little tame for someone with your background? No, actually. Um, and, and I'm a mountaineer, so I come back from a complicated cold mountaineering expedition, usually every near the end of July or, or the, near the end of June or early July. And so when I return to Colorado, I am so grateful for just the simplicity of a flower hike. You know, I just grab a light pack, a pair of shoes, and I just wander around with no destination and no agenda. And um, when I visit a new place or a trail that I've hiked a thousand times, I always find something new and surprising. So flower hikes are actually the opposite of boring. Uh, for me, they're just a place of, you know, new excitement and a place to feed my curiosity. And it sounds like a place of rejuvenation. It seems to me that around wildflowers, trail etiquette's pretty important. The idea of making sure that you're not, well, I suppose, killing the wildflowers. Talk to me a bit about that. (laughs) Definitely. Um, It is important that you stay on the trail. And that's why in this, in writing this book, um, you know, I didn't give away any secrets in the book. I Definitely kept people on established trails, and if any parts of the hikes are fragile, especially the alpine tundra, I usually put in a note about treading lightly. Um, So it is important that folks respect the flowers, but you also can get really up close and personal with them, and that's the best part. They stay in one place, you know, as opposed to (laughs) wildlife um, or birds (laughs) that might be flittering about. Flowers are always, you know, they'll stay there, so you can really get up close and personal and look at what makes them unique and beautiful. Okay, you had a hard time, I understand, whittling down the best hikes to 60. Uh, What are just a a couple (laughs) of your personal favorites in Colorado for wildflower hikes? Yeah, that's a great question. And it was really hard to pick 60 because we have such a diversity in Colorado, you know, that with peaks reaching over 14,000 feet to desert spots at 3,000 feet, um, it was a really, it's a unique place to go hiking. And it was hard um, for me to even just write about 60. But as far as my favorites, anything around Crested Butte, of course, is amazing. It's the wildflower capital of Colorado. Where there's actually a wildflower really festival, in fact. There is, right. Mm-hmm. Yep, which is usually at the height of wildflower season and is a great time to go. And I particularly love Russell Gulch Hike in, in uh, Crested Butte. It moves up a scenic valley, which is surrounded by jagged peaks and just bursting with over 100 different rainbow-colored blossoms. A um, couple other favorites are Pawnee Buttes out on the plains, American Basin, which is near Handy's Peak, and it explores a glacially carved valley covered in a sea of flowers, Uzel Falls in Rocky Mountain, and uh, Rabbit Ears Peak near Steamboat are also a couple other favorites. And later today, we'll post some of these hikes to CPR.org. How do wildflowers differ, say, on the plains from uh, high up in the mountains? Well, um, the plains hikes 
they come the flowers out on the plains come a little earlier because oh. it's drier, but also they just make you work a little harder um, <laughs> to find the blooms. There aren't as many like up in the mountains. You can just be in a in a meadow that is just full of you know thigh high or head high flowers even, and you'll be surrounded by a um, hundred different colors. Whereas in the plains, they're a little more subtle. They're growing out of much drier soil. But the surprise factor of hiking through this really dry brown landscape and then coming upon a section where there's bushes of brilliant pink and purple um, is really, you know, an exhilarating moment. Okay, so what is the timeline for the best wildflower hikes? When should we start planning and when is too late? Uh, Well, it really depends on where. So in the lower in the lower areas and out on the plains, now is a great time to get started or in the desert cool. near, you know, Grand Junction or in Colorado National Monument. Things will start start coming out now or in the next couple of weeks. And then all the way through September, you can see blooms. But so the high country will really start to peak um, early July, mid-July, end of July. And then there will be even blooms, you know, throughout August and September as the leaves start to come. I just love some of the names of wildflowers, fairy slippers, elephant heads, king's crowns, to name a few. Uh, Do you have a few favorite flower names? And I wonder if they accurately describe a flower's appearance. Yeah, you mentioned the fairy slipper, and that does. If a fairy had a slipper, that's that's what it would look like. A couple of my other favorites are monkey flower, and uh, um, death camas is a good name also. It's poisonous, so... Oh, d- good. Death, what? Camus. Camus, okay. <laughs> yeah, yep, and that's a poisonous one. Um, there's a yellow lady slipper. You mentioned elephant heads, which are these pinkish purple flowers that do resemble many elephant heads. Do you worry for the future of wildflowers? I mean, with things getting warmer, with things getting drier? I do. Climate change is a huge threat to flora and fauna. So, of course, I'm worried about its impacts on our flowers and each ecosystem and our planet overall. Um, And it's, you know, it comes more to light after a winter like this one where our snow is less than ideal. And a winter like this makes me just think about things on a more local, smaller scale. So even when I'm out skiing or not skiing because snow was in such short supply, I was thinking about the flowers and how the snow or lack thereof, will affect them this summer. So there's a connection there. Are you? Are we likely to see fewer wildflowers as a result? It's possible. It's possible. Yep, with okay. the lower snow levels and the less moisture. Chris, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Chris Kassar is the author of The Falcon Guidebook on the Best Wildflower Hikes in Colorado. She joined us by phone from her home in Salida. And as I said, we'll post some of her favorites in Colorado to CPR.org later today. When we come back, a real-life oil bust that decimated communities on the Western Slope inspires a new novel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's known as Black Sunday when Exxon pulled out of western Colorado. That was more than 35 years ago, but it's still a really important event in that area of Mesa and Garfield counties. Heather Abel first learned about the oil bust when she wrote for High Country News in the 1990s, and it stuck with her and propelled her to write her first novel, which has just come out. It's called The Optimistic Decade. And welcome to the program, Heather. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here, Ryan. You'd lived on the West Coast. Uh, You've since left Colorado to live on the East Coast. Why did the story of the oil bust and Exxon's exodus from Colorado uh, interest you so much? When I got to Colorado to work at the wonderful newspaper High Country News, I had known somewhat about how these energy product projects would shape landscapes and um, hurt streams and hurt various landscapes. I had no idea how much a simple decision by a giant corporation like Exxon could destroy a community and really ruin lives and reshape lives. And when I started to read about that, it seemed not just interesting, but important when we think of how rural Colorado is shaped, but also how the class divides in this country um, keep taking shape. Yeah, you're talking there about the human landscape. And uh, how did you first hear the the story of Black Sunday? Well, so I got to Colorado in the mid-90s, and I was to work at this paper, and I actually knew very little about the Western landscape or anything about the West. And so what I started to do was to go to the newspaper on the weekends and read the back issues. I needed to get a whole vocabulary. And it was just one Sunday afternoon. I was alone in the newspaper office and I was reading the papers from the early early 80s. And I read the first person accounts of this happening. And this has haunted you ever since. And I want to ask you to read some of your description of this event, this Exxon pullout from your book. Uh, We'll have to introduce one of the characters. Caleb is about 20. He's from California and has almost no experience with country living or the outdoors. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah, I'll just back up. He's, He's actually from the East Coast, so he has very little experience. And he's coming out to see Colorado and he gets to a small town. He doesn't see anyone there. And then he sees a trickle of people and he follows them. So here it goes. He heard the yowl of a PA system and a voice, the words running forward. Welcome to the first ever busted, rusted town, destroyed auction, everything for sale, how it works is I say a price, you hold up your card, simple as that. Finally, Caleb understood. Over the past few weeks, he'd seen the breathless front page headlines in the Idaho Statesman and the Denver Post, We Woke to a Nightmare and Rocky Mountain Hell. The story, as he'd pieced it together, was that mighty Exxon had vowed to wring oil from the black shale beneath the western spread of the Rockies. And for two years, thousands came seeking jobs, creating commerce where there'd been nothing. Hotels and bars and restaurants blooming like rare desert flowers, men camping in swarms along riverbanks, families living out of cars. Old people were kicked out of their trailer parks to make room for a shining new city to be built. Money, always so elusive, became comical in its near plenitude. Hmm. Why not accrue a little debt and buy and buy and buy? And then, a few weeks ago, Exxon had changed its mind with, as one journalist put it, 
the abruptness of a teenage driver making a screeching U-turn. Overnight, 10,000 became unemployed. Caleb felt solemn to be so near these people, to brush up against their disaster, to examine the tables with their cookie jars, mix masters, towers of plates, a congregation of teacups, buckets of wrenches, earrings, scissors, Bible figurines, piles of faded linens. Larger objects, weighted together on the ground, blank-faced TVs, basins with bloody rust stains, crayon-colored farm equipment, everything tagged with a black number on a yellow circle. The bleachers at the end of the lot were full, families settling down on pillows, lunches emerging from tinfoil. Only a handful of arms, arms Caleb figured that lived in wealthier towns, in the ski towns and the front-range cities, unaffected by the bust, raised to bid, and they bid on everything. Hmm. Seizing, in a way, on the, the misery of those who'd been left penniless because of Exxon's pullout. I mean, the idea behind oil shale is that it's not free-flowing oil underground. They were going to cook it out and try to create liquid oil. More than 2,000 people were laid off on Black Sunday. Oil shale workers and towns just emptied out almost immediately. And at this, this auction, Caleb meets Donnie who's about the same age and whom Caleb describes as a real cowboy. And the central plot line of this book, The Optimistic Decade, uh, Heather Abel, is that Donnie and his father lose their ranch. And Caleb turns it into this kind of hippie summer camp. Describe this alternative sort of camp for us. So... Caleb wants to build a summer camp like no other. He calls it Lamalo, which is actually Hebrew for why not. Kids come from all over the country to, as I write in the book, live simply so their parents might simply live without them. And they live very simply. They camp outside on platforms without roofs. There's no buildings to go into. There's no electric lights. It's a wilderness experience, and it's in the high desert, so it's rough there. It's hot. Um, there's thorny plants all over the place. But the kids love it. They love Caleb, and they love this sense of transformation that Caleb's offering them in the wilderness. What's the inspiration for this camp? How did that idea come to you? You know, that actually started when I was pretty young. I was homesick. I was around seven years old, and I ran out of things to read, and I went into my dad's office, and he had a book about the kibbutz in Israel. And that began this sort of lifelong or decades-long obsession of mine with utopian communities, with other ways of living. So with communes and with the kibbutz and with back-to-the-land summer camps, and I read as much as I could about them. I also did go to a really extraordinary camp myself, but it wasn't nearly as um, bare-bones as Lamalo. Gosh, it makes me think of some of the artists' camps in Colorado, like Drop City, for instance. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I was very inspired by Drop City. Um, I had a book from the library when I moved to New York to get um, my graduate degree, and I was missing Colorado incredibly. And I um, got this book about Drop City, and I was reading it all the time. And I actually... 
I'd been living in New York a couple months and really missing the West, and I woke up one day and I thought, oh, I know, I'm going to start my own utopian community out in the Southwest. (laughs) And it seemed for about two hours like, of course, this will get me back to the West. I've been interested in idealism and utopias my whole life. I'm going to do it. And then after about two hours, reality set in, and I realized I am not the kind of person who builds a utopian community. There's so many reasons why that's not what I'm going to do. And I felt deflated for about five minutes when I realized, ah, this is a character. This is someone I'm really interested in writing about. The fact is you did build your commune. You just build it with words, not bricks. Exactly. It occurs to me that you're an idea collector. You know, you read something and it sticks with you and it might stick with you for decades and become part of a novel like this one, The Optimistic Decade. And this is really a book that's not just about the oil bust, Heather Abel. It's a book for anyone who's thought that they could change the world, but is also at risk of becoming jaded. Yes. I mean, that, so a third inspiration I like to say, I like to say I read about the oil shale bust and couldn't get it out of my mind. I read about the kibbutz, couldn't get it out of my mind. But the third inspiration is a little bit more lived, which is that I was raised by radicals, radical leftists. I w- grew up going to protests. I love going to protests. But my parents and the people around me were also quite disillusioned. So I was raised under the shadow of disillusionment. We'll keep trying to change the world, but Our attempts are not going to work. And I wanted to write towards that feeling, too. What do we do with an idealism that's been tarnished with disillusionment? How do we go on? How do we decide what to do in the world? And that was the third thing I wanted to write toward when I decided to write The Optimistic Decade. Hmm. I think in many ways that mirrors the journey of those oil shale workers. So much hope and so many hopes dashed Okay, I'm going to ask you if you're jaded, but we're going to take a break before we hear the answer. Uh, In just a moment, we'll continue my conversation with author Heather Abel. Her new novel, The Optimistic Decade, is set on Colorado's western slope. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's return to my conversation with novelist Heather Abel. Her new book is The Optimistic Decade. And at its heart, it's set in western Colorado, at its heart is an event about 35 years ago in which Exxon, which had poured a lot of money into an oil shale project and brought a lot of wealth to communities on the western slope, pulled out Overnight, this has been dubbed Black Sunday. It still reverberates in western Colorado today. Uh, so, Heather, this is set some 30 years ago, but it's it's so relevant today, this book, because everything you write about, the polarized media, echo chambers, the urban-rural divide, the sagebrush rebellion, all mm-hmm. sounds really current. So against that backdrop, I'm going to ask, are you jaded these days? Well, it's... A great question, because before the break, you had said that the shape of idealism and disillusionment mirrors the that of the boom and the bust. And I love you that you said that, because it was that shape that really brought me to this novel. I actually drew that shape on the wall of my office, and I thought about the booms and the busts and the idealism and the disillusionment and a mountain. And 
the interesting thing is that as I wrote the book, I began to believe that idealism and disillusionment are not as dichotomous as I'd gone into it believing. So I think I actually went into the book more jaded, believing that people did have an optimistic decade and then it would fade. And now I'm realizing that idealism morphs into something maybe more mature or more complicated. It's an idealism that might be um, it's a jaded idealism, but it's one that <laughs> accepts the absurdities of the world. Like, we're going to keep fighting even though there's failure all around us because it's the fight that brings us together, that connects us with the people that we love and the people we don't know. And it's the fight that keeps us alive. And so I I, I think I've... I'm less jaded, but I'm definitely not back to sort of a youthful idealism that I had when I was a teenager. Jaded idealism. You, meant, <laughs> you mentioned uh, before the break that you are the daughter of uh, kind of hippie radicals. And there's a certain amount of disdain for liberals in this book. Uh, so the other main characters are this girl, Rebecca, who's a student at Berkeley, and her father, Ira, publishes a lefty newspaper. And the way you frame them, like Rebecca at one point says, fun? Who cares about fun? The whole world is going to hell. My point is that Ira and Rebecca, they kind of think they're smarter than everyone. And anyone who doesn't see it their way is kind of missing the whole point of life. Were you feeling like you wanted to point something out to liberals about how they're perceived? I don't think I was trying to point anything out to anyone other than myself. <laughs> I was really trying to hold up a mirror to a world I know very, very well, to a world I have lived in. And I was doing it with affection and love, but also humor, because I really do believe that every subgroup on this planet needs to be able to look at themselves, at ourselves, and laugh. I think that's an important part of this jaded idealism, that we have to understand our own hypocrisies and that our hypocrisies make us more interesting and more connected to other subgroups. So I think that Ira and Rebecca do believe that they have the answer, but they also can laugh at themselves for how ridiculous it is that they think they have the answer when they also believe so strongly in equality and justice. Mm. So it's that sort of hypocrisy that I do think they're aware of that I wanted to hold up a mirror to because I think there's something really interesting and important for all of us to see there. Without giving too much away, Rebecca loses some of that holier-than-thou sensibility as the book goes on, and all the characters, to some extent, lose their idealism. Why did you set this story against the backdrop of an oil bust in the 1980s? Why did that feel like the right framing? Well, I needed... I, w I wanted... First of all, Caleb to walk into a town that was busted and to the, everyone in the town was at that moment disillusioned. They were full of despair, but he was full of idealism. So right there you have a culture clash. And that culture clash and the class divide seems very important to me, not just then, but it's the fissures, it's the fault lines that continue to today. And so I wanted to see where they could have begun or where they could have gotten stronger, that one community was losing everything. And another group of people were just starting out. And, of course, that happens all the time, right, with idealism and disillusionment and booms and busts. They affect different groups differently. So it was that moment 
of dissonance, of conflict that I wanted to get at because I think it's those moments that when they go unnoticed or unlooked at, really, you know, it's like water down a ravine. It's creating these fault lines that then we look up and say, oh, wait, we're so divided from each other. We have just about a minute left. I wonder if writing this book helped bring you back emotionally to Colorado, even though you don't live here anymore. Oh, it was so wonderful. I live in Massachusetts, and Massachusetts is great in many ways, but it's not Colorado. And I would wake up every morning, get my kids off to school, sit down at my desk, and I could be back on the mesa. I could feel the sun, which feels so different than it does here. I could look at the plants. I could have different bird song in my ears. There's a whole different, of course, sense of light and space. And it was amazing for me to get to go there every day in this imaginary fantasy way. And then, of course, close my computer, scrape the ice off my car, and (laughs) I was back in Massachusetts again. Thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks a lot, Ryan. So did I. That's Heather Abel. Her first novel is called The Optimistic Decade. It's out now. It is largely set in western Colorado after the oil shale bust of the early 1980s. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News.